1 through 6. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant who was named Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So Abram, after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram as her husband, her husband, whoa, 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 her husband as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant into your embrace, and when she saw that she conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. This is the word of the Lord. Interesting text this morning. <laughs> what are we going to do with uh, Genesis 16? This is going to be uh, this is going to be fun. If you're new, however, and wondering about some context about this sermon and where we're going, we are in the midst of a sermon series right now. We are called Walking by Faith. We've been watching Abram, also known as Abraham. Take his first faltering steps of faith, and we've seen that faith growing and maturing as this series continues. Uh, Last week in Genesis 15, God promised Abram a son from his own body and descendants as numerous as the stars. And Abram believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Paul quotes this response in both Romans 4 and Galatians 3 as one of the greatest illustrations of faith in the Bible. James also quotes it to highlight the significance of genuine Faith, But from this mountaintop experience of faith, Abram still has lessons to learn. He has not yet graduated from the school of faith, right? We learn in verse 3 that Abram has been in the land for 10 years, and God still hasn't fulfilled his promise to give him these descendants that he has promised him uh, that he's going to have, and he's 86 years old at this time. So that time stamp is important, uh, 10 years in the land, 10 years of trusting God to fulfill his promises. And though uh, God reaffirms that promise and clarifies it last week and says it's going to be a son from your own body, it's been 10 years. And so here in chapter four, or chapter 16, Abraham is facing the test of time. Will he, and this is the big question for this morning's sermon, will Abraham continue to tenaciously trust in God's promise? Is he going to hold on to that faith that he expressed so poignantly in Genesis 15, or is he going to have a lapse in faith? Well, we're going to get the answer to that question pretty quickly here in the first four verses, and so we're going to look briefly at Sarah's shortcut. We're going to look at 
Hagar's revenge, and uh, finally, the God who sees these broken people and redeems their broken lives. And my aim uh, for this morning's sermon is that we would learn to trust God with the unresolved parts of our story, and that when we fail, we would see that God sanctifies us even through our shortcuts. And so let's pray this morning as we dive into God's word that he would meet us here in the midst of this uh, broken text, in the midst of our broken lives, and do uh, what he does, his beautiful work of redemption. And so, Father, as we uh, stare into the brokenness of this text, uh, we can't help but see our own brokenness mirrored right back at us. We struggle with patiently waiting for your plans to unfold in our lives. We are very prone to taking shortcuts, uh, God seeking quick fixes to the pain points, the struggles, the challenges, the uncomfortable parts of our lives. Uh, So would you help us see this morning that you make beautiful things uh, out of our broken lives, that you take even uh, the painful shortcuts that we sometimes uh, follow and use them to sanctify us more and more to look like you. So would you come this morning, uh, by the power of your spirit, would you encourage your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's start this morning with Sarai's shortcut here in verses uh, one through four. We've gotten the context already, right? Abram's been promised a son from his own body. We saw that last week. Uh, But this week, um, here we have Sarai coming up with a shortcut to God's design. So in verses one through four, now Sarai Abram's wife had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has presented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And so Sarai... Abram's wife has a wonderful solution to Abram's problem, the fact that he has no children. She has this Egyptian servant who she thinks would make a great surrogate mother. Uh, If Abram can get her pregnant, she can start a family through Hagar. Now, in this culture, this is important to see, in this culture, there were no fertility treatments, right? No artificial insemination, no in vitro fertilization. This is how surrogacy worked in the ancient Near East. Uh, obviously, in our own time and culture, we look upon this and go, how appalling, how disturbing, how messed up could this possibly be for you to uh, hand over some maidservant here uh, to have children with her? Um, it's incredibly disturbing to our modern sensibilities, but you have to see here that in the ancient Near East, if you couldn't have children, this was your only option. This is kind of what you did. Uh, archaeologists have even discovered ancient law codes from this period governing surrogacy and how it lurked, because obviously, as we're going to see today, it could be kind of a messy process. But this is how it worked. If you're dealing with infertility in ancient Near East, this is how, this is not a perfect solution. The Bible is not endorsing this solution. <laughs> this is not a good idea, but this is how surrogacy worked in the ancient Near East. So Sarai's scheme is not perhaps as far-fetched as it might seem to us today with all our concerns about power dynamics and justice and the Me Too movement. Um, just set that to the side for a moment here, perhaps, as we consider our text this morning and the challenges that Sarai is facing. I'm sure this wasn't Sarai's first choice, you know, but she's getting into her 70s and, you know, even though people lived a little older that time, you know, that's usually getting beyond the age of 
childbearing. And so Sarai, at this point, is thinking, man, things are not looking promising for me to have a child. God has promised Abraham a son, uh, but maybe, just maybe, it's not going to be through her, right? After all, God promised Abram a son, right? Not Sarai necessarily a son. So Sarai starts doing some logic, doing some thinking here. Maybe, perhaps, um, if I just hand this other woman off to Abram, uh, we can make these promises work. Maybe God just needs a little help to make this whole process uh, happen, right? You know, maybe he just needs a little extra encouragement here. So back in uh, chapter 15, Abram, because we're wondering, where is Abraham in all this speculation? What is he doing? Uh, back in chapter 15, Abram specifically asked God if Eliezer, his servant, was going to be his heir. And God told him, no, it was going to be a child from his own body, But here in chapter 15, neither Sarai or Abram consult the Lord on this creative new idea for fulfilling his plan. We simply read that Abram listened to the voice of his wife, Sarai. This expression only occurs in one other place in the whole Bible. Anybody have any clue where that other place? (laughs) Oh, that's so good. You got it right out of the jump. Good, great work, Kristen. That is phenomenal. I love that we have some Bible students in here, right? Because that's it. The only other time in the entire Bible where we have a wife, you know, husband just going, yeah, whatever you say, (laughs) whatever you say, honey, (laughs) I'm just going to do it, is back in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. And if you're familiar with the Bible, you know that story didn't go particularly well when Adam just decided to just eat the fruit and, you know, it's all been downhill from there. But here we go again. We get a uh, another version, right? Here we are once again, another guy and a girl, not in a garden this time, uh, but a similar temptation, a similar struggle. And uh, we get to see the results here and how this unfolds here in just a few moments. But I want to pause right here and just say, can you relate to Sarai? Any of you, any of you in the room here kind of relate to Sarai and her instincts to kind of make things happen? Yeah, she gets kind of a bad rap for this whole situation, but she's trying to be resourceful. She's trying to be flexible. She's a realist. Look, I'm not going to have kids. You know, you know Abram's got to have kids. We got to make this thing happen, right? And I, there's got to be a few of you that can kind of relate to that squirmishness with just waiting around for God's promises to unfold, waiting for those um, complicated parts of your story to resolve that you wish would just be fixed immediately and wish would just kind of like work out. And I don't know what that may be, whether that's a job search or relational search or whatever it might be in your life, those areas where God just for whatever reason in his grace and in his mercy and his kindness and his wisdom hasn't for some reason given you what you want. And you find yourself in that position of having to wait patiently for God's purposes to unfold. Some of us, though, don't like to wait patiently for God's purposes to unfold. And that's what we see here with uh, Sarai, you know. Have you ever tried uh, to help God along, perhaps, in your life? Have you ever tried to uh, maybe uh, make things happen a little bit more? As I was preparing for this sermon, I was reminiscing with my sweet wife, Jamie, about a particularly memorable uh, time in our marriage uh, when she really tried to make some things happen. This is pretty funny. I had to ask her permission to share this rather hilarious story, but I was a pastor in a Florida at the time, youth pastor, we were just starting to have kids and settling in. You know, you have lots of, you have young kids, you know, that's an exhausting season where it's kind of demanding. And Jamie was like, man, I'd love to move back up to Michigan, be close to my mom and have all that support and encouragement. And I was like, oh, that's a beautiful desire there. I'm I'm loving being a youth pastor in Florida at the moment. And so she started applying for jobs for me in Michigan. Now... (laughs) The funny part is she didn't tell me that she had started applying for jobs 
for me in the state of Michigan. So I started getting phone calls from churches asking me about whether or not, about the church. What do you love about the church? Why are you so excited about joining First Baptist Church? And I'm literally just no clue. Like, who are you? What do you want? Why are you calling? Like, what is, it was one of those just hilarious moments. I don't know how I fumbled my way through some of those conversations, but needless to say, I did not get any of the jobs that uh, Jamie had so dutifully applied for me in the attempt. But you, you get the idea, right? Some of us, like when we, when we are ready to move, we're ready to make something happen, right? And, you know, sometimes we do some crazy things to actually make that happen. And that was one of my favorite illustrations of that story. But perhaps you may not be able to relate so much to, to uh, Sarai here, who happens to be a pretty strong-willed, resourceful woman who's got a lot of initiative and a lot of spunk, apparently, and is willing to try some. Maybe you can relate more to Abraham in this situation. You know, Abraham is just like, hey, whatever you want to do, I don't care, right? No prayer, right? No seeking godly counsel, no wisdom. He doesn't seek the Lord. He just kind of passively just kind of sits back and kind of goes along with his wife's subjection, right? Maybe you've been there. Maybe you have tried uh, a situation like that, right? No, no prayer, no wise counsel. Um, you don't actually do the due diligence, and then all of your plans backfire. Has that ever happened to you? <laughs> like, I should have said something. I should, have, I should have probably thought about that a little bit more. But here we have it, both with Sarah and Abram. No seeking the Lord, no following through, no doing the due diligence, no prayer, no wisdom, none of the things that need to be done. And so we've looked at Sarai's shortcut, but there is one obvious problem with Sarai's plan. Sarai has totally overlooked Hagar's response to this situation. Instead of seeing her as a real person who will be drastically impacted by this new situation, she treats her like a piece of property to be used and disposed of as needed. But Hagar, as we will see, is also a pretty resourceful, strong-willed woman too, and she's determined to make the most of this new opportunity to get ahead in life. So we've looked at Sarai's shortcut. I want to look next at Hagar's revenge here in verse 4b. As the story unfolds, Abram went into Hagar and she conceived, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. So when Hagar gets pregnant, she rubs it in Sarai's face and seeks to assert herself over her mistress. She now is bearing the heir, right, of Abraham, this great patriarch. Her stakes have just risen, you know, in importance incredibly, right? Sarai has used her to accomplish her purposes, and now she's using her new status to take her revenge on Sarai. It's like, Sarah, you're just an old woman. Like, I mean, you, you aren't going to be carrying on the line of God's promises. I'm the new person here, and so I'm also going to assert myself. I'm going to take this opportunity uh, to move up in the world from a mere maidservant to now a wife, you now the number one wife in this uh, family. And so we've arrived, I think, at another low point in the story. We have degenerated into a soap opera with baby mama and the wife fighting it out with Abraham caught in the middle. And if you, in case you think I'm exaggerating, it just continues in verses 5 through 6 here, because you're like, this is ridiculous. And Sarai said, Abraham, may the wrong uh, done to me beyond you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between me and you. And so she's like, you know, it's like, Sarah, wasn't this your idea? But she's like, Abe, no, this is your fault. You did this to me. And, and, you know, we get the blame game amping up very quickly. But Abram said to Sarai, behold, your servant is in your power. 
Do it to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. Similar to the garden, right? You know, Adam blames Eve, Eve blames the serpent. We just have this blame game going on again. You know, Sarai in this case blames Abram. He's like, hey, this wasn't my idea. You do whatever you want to your servant. You can go treat her as terribly as you want, do whatever you want. And that is where we find ourselves at this low point in the narrative. And that's what I love about the Old Testament, right? It doesn't sugarcoat things. This is how life goes when sin has its way in the lives of people, right? This is what happens, right? We have Sarai the schemer. We have Hagar the homewrecker and Abraham the apathetic. All of these broken people, right, that are just a mess, right? In need of God's, deeply in need of God's redemption. And I love that brokenness because it's all of us, right? As we look at these broken lives, I mean, you may not identify with all of these characters, but you could definitely identify with one of these characters probably in the story and the way they're relating sinfully to this struggle, right? Most of us have been here at some point in our lives, right? All of our schemes and striving haven't delivered what we thought, and we're left with the relational fallout, the emptiness, the addiction, lives of quiet desperation. Call it what you will. We all find rock bottom at some point in our lives, and maybe some of you haven't gotten there yet, uh, but texts like this help us realize that what to do when we find ourselves at that point, when we find ourselves at rock bottom, because this is often where we discover that we're actually spiritually hungry, right? When all of our attempts to maneuver our way into success, comfort, and safety have failed, we find ourselves open to God and what he wants to do in our lives. God has this beautiful way of humbling us before him, cultivating deeper dependence on him through the very wreckage, through the very brokenness of our lives. Uh, It's been cool hearing stories in our LTGs of where people met God in their lives. So you get a second soft plug in our service for LTGs, uh, but opportunities to hear where God met people in the midst of their lives, in the midst of their brokenness, in the midst of their pain, in the midst of their suffering. And as we've been sharing these stories, it's incredible to hear how God met each person along the way at particular points of pain, usually, and sorrow or suffering or sin in their lives. Uh, For me, it was when all of my efforts to blow through college in three years and head off to law school in a blaze of glory, came crashing down, right? It was an opportunity to see that all that hunger for recognition and approval and status was really a spiritual hunger to be seen and known and loved deeply by God. These, these moments of brokenness, these moments of weakness in our lives are moments where God wants to get our attention, wants to do his deeper work of healing and redemption in our lives. So Sarai tries this shortcut that totally backfires in the most spectacular way. While Hagar seeks her revenge only to find herself a fugitive alone in the desert, she has to run for her life. And Abram, who seems to just want peace, just want peace in his household, right, finds himself caught in the middle of a broken home between two very angry women and in the most uncomfortable position in which he could find himself. But God sees these two strong-willed women and one passive man, man, in the midst of their brokenness, and he meets them right in the middle of their mess. Well, Sarai and Abram's stories take many more chapters to resolve. Here in chapter 16, the narrator focuses in on Hagar, and I love this. We're going to see God's heart for this woman who has been caught up into this drama through no choice of her own, but has been swept up into this mess and the way God sees her, the way God's ministers to her. And so I want to close here with the God who sees in verse 7 through 14. And so let me read uh, along here in the story. 
verse, uh, chapter 16, verse 7. The angel of the Lord found her, this is Hagar, by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant, and you shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be like a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Bir Lahoi Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. So this is an interesting story, right? We, we kind of descend from the depths of the, the soap opera-like drama of uh, you know, a child being born, drama in the household, uh, to Hagar running off into the desert. And here, the angel of the Lord steps in to this situation. The first thing I want you to notice is this mysterious figure of the angel of the Lord. Here in verse 7, verse 9, verse 11, uh, the angel of the Lord is an interesting figure, right? There are lots of angels in the Bible. They make appearances. They're messengers from God, delivering words from God to his people. Um, But there's also this angel of the Lord, and this is a much rarer figure in the biblical narratives. Whenever this figure appears, people treat this person as an encounter with God himself. You see that by the end of the text. She said, God himself has seen me. God himself has spoken to me. God himself has related to me. So what's going on here? Most commentators think this is a actual pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. This is God in the flesh appearing in the second person, perhaps, of Jesus. And so Jesus is on the scene in this figure of the angel of the Lord, and he's ministering to Hagar, certainly anticipating his much fuller ministry in the New Testament. So let's look more closely what the angel of the Lord does here in this ministry to Hagar. I want to focus in here on the ministry of listening and seeing. Those are the two things that come out very clearly in this narrative. I love the fact that God cares about Hagar and her plight, right? Clearly no one else had really seen her. Right? And throughout the narrative, her mistress had used and overlooked her. She's like, oh yeah, she was my wife, you know, my maid servant Hagar. She can, she can produce a child for me. Her master had used her and not defended her or supported her or protected her in any meaningful way. Right? This is a woman who's been overlooked. She's been neglected. No one has cared about her plight or her situation. And now she's all on her own out in the wilderness. But God cares for her, right? This is actually the only ancient Near Eastern account of a God speaking to a woman, which is interesting, right? It was thought in the ancient Near East, right, that, that, that there's like a, you know, men were like at the highest level, women were down here somewhere, and so the gods would only talk to men. But here, God is clearly concerned uh, about this woman, both Hagar in this text here, and we're going to see further along also Sarai. So he pursues Hagar, inquiring about her situation, Right? He assures her that God has listened to her affliction in verse 16. God cares about her situation and her circumstances, and he offers her difficult but important directions to return back to her master's 
house and submit to her mistress, which, as difficult as that would be, considering all the relational drama going on, would actually be the safest place for a single woman who was pregnant in a culture that was pretty brutal towards women in general, but, all, but particularly to women that were, uh, were unmarried and had no other protectors. And so uh, they, she gets some clear direction to go home to the safest place for and as he made great promises to her master, God goes on to make great promises to her as well in the text, right? She's going to have children. She's going to have a great multitude. She's going to have a son. God is going to be with her. And notice her response in verse 13 You are the God of seeing, right? Here's a woman who just felt overlooked by everyone. No one saw her. No one understood her. Nobody valued her. She was just being used by everybody. And yet this God sees this marginalized woman. Uh, Egyptian woman, not, not a part of this, the seed of the promise, not a part of God's promises, but God sees her and God makes great promises to her. She realizes that the God of her master and mistress cares for her too and will protect her, even though her child isn't going to be part of that promised uh, seed and all that's going to bring redemption to the world. Uh, she's still going to have a, be a great nation. Right? She sees that the Lord look at, looks after her. She sees that the Lord cares uh, for her. And I think we all have this core longing in our heart to be seen, right? To be listened to, to be known, to be cared for and loved, right? We all, we all want to know that someone cares about us, someone sees us, someone understands us, someone loves us, someone actually is engaged with the troubles and the trials and the struggles in our lives. And if you're sitting here this morning wondering if you are seen, if you are listened to, if you are known, if you are cared for and loved, then I have some wonderfully good news for you this morning. God didn't just see a lonely Egyptian woman in the wilderness and care for her. He saw each and every one of us, right, lost in our own guilt and shame, wandering far from him. And he came down in the person of Jesus to seek and save the lost, right? We could never find our way up to God, but God came down in the person of Jesus to seek and save us. And we see this all over Jesus' earthly ministry. We're seeing was always a preparation to move towards lost, sick, hurting, and broken people. When God does come down in the flesh, he is the God of seeing. And when he sees, his heart is moved with compassion. He moves towards people in healing and redemption and restore and restoration. That's the kind of God we serve. Probably the prime illustration of this is in John 4, where Jesus In a strikingly similar situation, strikingly similar story, Jesus meets another broken woman with an equally troubling past uh, at another well, offering her even more precious promises. He offers her uh, living water leading to abundant and eternal life. It's Jesus' story, right? The Samaritan woman at the well. Uh, Here's another woman who's had multiple relationships and husbands uh, and finds herself in this broken place and Jesus reaches out to her and offers her these incredible promises. That's the kind of God we serve, a God who loves to reach out to the broken and the hurting, a God who loves the marginalized, who is not just concerned about the men, but also equally about the women who are struggling in broken places in the world, and he offers this living water, right, leading to abundant and eternal life. And Jesus died and rose again to secure this promise of abundant and eternal life for each and every one of us who trusts in Jesus. The author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 12 too, that Jesus endured the cross 
for the joy that was set before him, the joy of seeing all the people he would redeem and restore. And because Jesus endured the cross, he invites each and every one of us to draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. We have a God who sees, we have a God who knows, we have a God who loves, and so we're called and invited to draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. In Hebrews 4, um, 15 through 16, we read, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You see, God sees our struggles. He is familiar with our grief. He is completely aware of all the ways we fall short. And yet he invites us to confidently draw near to him in our time of need. That's the God you serve. The God who offers us to come, bearing our burdens, our guilt, our shame, our struggles, our unresolved dreams and plans, and and to find them met in him. We live in a culture that is quick to dispose of broken things and broken people. But God is all about the work of redemption and restoration. There are no broken lives that are beyond repair in the hands of the master potter. And so I want to close with with an illustration from uh, the world of Japanese pottery. <clears throat> there is an artistic tradition called uh, kintsugi, where broken pots are painstakingly mended <clears throat> over time, but not by hiding the cracks, but by stylistically filling the cracks with gold, silver, or platinum. Kin is the Japanese word for gold, and sugi is the word for mending. And so it's this process of taking these these broken things and mending them, uh, but not just in a utilitarian fashion, but actually taking the broken parts and filling them with the most valuable substances, with gold or silver or uh, platinum, to actually accentuate the, the actual broken points. The cracks in the master potter's hands become expressions of beauty, This common pot that was broken and disposed of becomes infinitely more valuable through this process of restoration, right? It's now had gold or silver or planted some valuable metals woven into the fabric of this beautiful pot to make it something more beautiful and more valuable than it was originally. In some families, these broken pots are passed down through generations and painstakingly repaired by kintsugi masters. They'll keep these broken shards and fragments and slowly, uh, redemptively, we might even say, work them into these works of art, these beautiful expressions of uh, this beautiful artistic tradition. And I think this is just an incredibly beautiful picture of what God does with us. You see, Jesus doesn't dispose of us when we're broken, right? Jesus doesn't uh, just sweep all the broken parts of our lives away uh, and then, you know, and then start new and just give us an entirely new lives. He doesn't even hide the broken places in our lives and the broken pieces in our story. He makes actually the most broken places become some of the most beautiful areas in our lives. He accentuates, he highlights the brokenness because he takes it redemptively and restores it and renews it so that those fractures, those breaking points in our lives become in the hands of our master potter, these expressions of incredible beauty that go on display for all time as trophies of God's beautiful redemptive grace, all to the praise of his glory. This is what we see, right, in the life of Hagar, someone who it seems like her, yeah, you know, she's at the end of her story, you know. 
She's a broken pot beyond you. She's found herself out in the wilderness, but in the hands of God who sees her and looks at her, she's gonna make something beautiful out of the brokenness in her life. That's what we're gonna see in the lives of Sarai and Abram here. This is kind of a low point in the narrative for them as their faith kind of uh, slips for a moment, right? They, it falters in this moment, but God is doing something beautiful. He's gonna bring breath blessings to the entire world through Sarai and Abraham, and God is still doing that today. God is still making beautiful things out of our broken lives, and God is using even, and sometimes especially, the broken points in our lives right, to bring out his beauty, his redemptive and restorative grace. And so the invitation this morning is to bring our broken lives to Jesus and ask him to make something beautiful out of them to bring our broken lives into the light of community so that we can be pointed to Jesus together. Uh, that's what we're doing in our, in our life transformation groups, getting that opportunity to point each other towards Jesus and the restoration he's doing in our lives and to be a community extending the gracious welcome of Jesus to a world filled with broken and discarded people. Right? That's the world we live in. You know, we're so quick to cancel people, write people off, judge people, discard people. And yet here, uh, as a church, we have this beautiful opportunity to welcome people in to be a part of God's work of restoration and renewal. Oh, that we would be a church where broken lives are restored and renewed to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, <clears throat> these stories of brokenness in the Old Testament because, uh, Father, they, they just mirror our lives back to us. The brokenness in the world, the hardships in our lives, our relationships, our families. Um, God, and they welcome us into your beautiful work of redemption in our lives. And so pray that even as we gather around this table uh, where your body was broken for us and your blood was shed for us, that we would indeed be able to bring the brokenness in our lives uh, to here, to your broken body, to your bloodshed and experience that renewal and redemption. This church would be a safe place for people to walk along this journey of restoration and renewal that many in our city, uh, many broken lives will be put back together here in this context of this community and that you'd get all the glory through all of it. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Pastor Mike. This brings us to our time to celebrate the Lord's Supper together as a church family.